amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 154, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And Happy New Year. Yes, it's 2019. I'm going to have to get used to writing that down now because it's the first time I've been using it, really. Well, never mind writing that down. I'm getting used to what day of the week we're on. Yeah. Have you been the same over like Christmas? Every day's like, what day are we on again? Yeah, yeah. It's changed to normal weekdays from like Boxing Day and New Year's Eve and all of yeah, this stuff. It was just dates before, wasn't yeah. it? So somebody just tell me apparently it's Friday tomorrow. So I thought we'd better do a new episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah. New year, <laughs> new episode, new guest as well. Yeah. I mean, what a year we've got coming up in 2019. Now, it's really weird because even though we only took one week off, we did record a bunch of shows before you went to America. So we kind of haven't done this for a while. Yeah, yeah. This is like the first time. <laughs> Uh, since I've been back and I'm slowly putting videos onto my YouTube channel so there's going to be some great content but I'd like to thank Antic Podcast who I met out there they're an Atari podcast and the Handy Links podcast as well so there's another Atari one and as you know in America they love Atari IBM and all of that stuff so it's great to see all those machines and uh, the guys at the Vintage Computer Festival East were really nice and of course Adam Spring who hosted me whilst I was out there. So you went out there for like three weeks before Christmas and I did see a couple of pictures that you posted of like kind of being in this massive warehouse house surrounded by all these old computers yeah so we we had a, a kind of adam has very good contacts yeah. and there was an ibm collector who wants to remain private but he had a massive collection it's like um indiana jones you know the uh, <laughs> kind of room with all the artifacts in and he's got stuff like some ibm rev one boards he's got like the original biosers like all the really early stuff hand soldered boards and stuff so i'm going to be showing all of that on my channel i think i've got like a 40 minute video wow okay did you have to move like a boulder then go into a mountain to yeah uh, yeah there's parts like that (laughs) so i mean you know there is more stuff coming up as well. Now, this month, we're going to be uh, jumping on a plane and nipping over to Ireland. Oh, yeah, Amiga Island. We couldn't make it last year because we had another event going on. But this year, we are free, so we are popping over to the Emerald Isles. So for people that might not have been before or know about it, what is Amiga Island? Amiga Island is a group of Amiga users based in Ireland, but they, they seem to get quite a lot of English coming over as well because it's really easy to jump on the plane. And from all over Europe as well, don't they? Yeah, 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 quite a lot of Polish uh, Amiga users come as well. And it's a great little meeting. Um, they have talks from guys like Trevor Dickinson, David Pleasance, and we're going to do some talks as well. And they also have workshops. Now, the cool thing I love about Amiga Island, they don't usually have this at other shows. Yeah, You've got guys sitting there in the corner recapping, soldering boards and stuff. So you can bring your Amiga along, get it all fixed up and modified there on the spot, you know. Can we book an extra suitcase on the plane now that you've told me that? (laughs) (laughs) So this is happening in uh, two weeks' time on the 18th and 19th of January. Now, if you want to get tickets for it, it's actually in a really little town, isn't it? Yeah, um, I I think I keep saying this wrong. Athlon. I think it's Athlon, not Athlone. Athlone, uh, Athlone, yeah. yeah, And it's a small village, a small town in the middle of Ireland, but it's really good fun. Yeah, the Prince of Wales Hotel is going to be happening. It's on the Friday and the Saturday. We're flying out on the Friday morning. I mean, tickets are still available if people want to come along. 
Um, and I'll put those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And also, if you check out the AmigaUsers.ie, they also have their own podcast, yeah, uh, yeah. which is an Amiga one about kind of more about the modern side of Amiga, like OS4 and stuff. And Ravi's going to take me out drinking in Ireland for the first time. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. going to have to try a Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> we might sh- maybe should record another month's worth of episode. That's <laughs> yeah. just, you know, something good, good over idea. that still. So that is coming up this month. We've got Play Expo, loads of those coming up. I mean, our event calendar is already filling up for 2019. If you want to find out all of that, check out our website at theretrohour.com. Now, what a guest we've got to kick off the first episode of 2019. If I said Microsoft and the Xbox, two pretty big brands I think we're going to cover today, aren't we? Yeah, so this is a, an astonishing guest to have yep. as our first one for the new year. And he's Robbie Back. He's basically the author of Xbox Revisited, and he was the chief officer of the Xbox and Microsoft. So we had Ed Fries on before. He was yep. responsible for publishing and the games. Robbie was his boss. And also, he was kind of, he worked in Microsoft for a long time. You know, he started with Encarta. And uh, or even the word processors and stuff, he was doing all of those areas, and then he went into the uh, Xbox world. We even chat a bit about the Zoom in here as well, don't the we? Zoom, <laughs> yeah, there's loads <laughs> of Zoom, stuff. So yeah. Really good chat. I mean, it's kind of the story, what I like about this interview is, we kind of get quite a bit of the story about how Microsoft looked at the upcoming PlayStation 2, and how they went about challenging that, you know, because everyone knew that was going to be the main console. How did a company that hadn't really made a console before, had no idea how to do it, go about challenging the market leader? And also how the public reacted, Mm. because people did not like Halo when they first saw it. They didn't like the Xbox, you know, and how successful that is now. That's one of the main players. You've got Xbox and PlayStation, haven't you? So So really good chat. Coming up with Robbie Back, the original chief Xbox officer at Microsoft, and he was their president of entertainment and devices too. Really good chat with him coming up on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now let's start our first episode of 2019 by giving a big thank you to the people who've allowed us to keep doing this podcast into the new year. And that is people who have supported the Retro Hour podcast. Now, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website. The idea is, if you like what we do and you'd like to help us out, completely optional. We've said it before, this show will always be free. We'll occasionally have some advertising on some yeah. shows, but but mainly... It's the kind of donations that keep us going. Yeah, we've got big plans for this year as well, so they do come in really useful. And for making a donation of any amount via PayPal, or we have cryptocurrency on our website too, you will earn your place in the very prestigious Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, Lawrence Benyon. Falco. Nigel Wilkinson. And Andrew P. Jones. And you can make a donation. You'll find all of those links on the front page of theretrohour.com, and that will be massively appreciated. Right, then, how many messages have we had? About Bandersnatch. Oh, yeah, so many. If you don't know what Bandersnatch is, it's uh, Black Mirror's new interactive adventure. And Black Mirror's an absolutely amazing series that you should, you should check out. And it's uh, on Netflix. That was the reason I signed up to Netflix again. To watch yeah, it, yeah, 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 to watch Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is an interactive adventure, like choose your own books or kind of choose the destiny. And have you played it yet? Yeah, I mean... I was a bit late getting to it because I mean, at the time we're recording this, I mean, it was the uh, the 3rd of January, day before the show comes out. It came out last weekend, didn't it? Just before New Year. A load of people were messaging as the date came out on the Friday. I know you watched it then, Joe did as well. And I didn't get around to watching it until the Sunday night, so I was like, oh, trying to avoid all the spoilers about yeah, it. Yeah, but... yeah, and we promise we won't drop any clangers now. So. Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, to kind of give you a little bit of a, a story as to what it's about... It's set in the early 80s, isn't it? And it's about a guy who works in the software industry. Yeah. And there are some 
quite famous cameos in there as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, Jeff Minter yeah. is actually involved there. And uh, we've had him on the show recently. Uh, absolutely amazing guy. And a lot of the characters are kind of like strangely named like uh, gaming characters so uh, Colin Rittman Colin Rittman yeah sounds pre- pretty familiar and uh, Bandersnatch was actually a title wasn't it that yeah. came out well it didn't come out Imagine Software wasn't it it was that one that bankrupted them ah yeah, okay the, yeah. the super game that never came out so I mean it is a Spectrum game that they're making in the show as well but like you said the, the really good thing about it is I mean you kind of get that 80s nostalgia it's a British kid working at a software company very similar to if you watch all those old documentaries like um, like Commercial Breaks, I think was a big one, wasn't it, back in the mid-'80s. Um, it's very reminiscent of that, but the idea is that when you're watching it on Netflix, you will get a decision as to what to do next and which scene and where your character will develop in the story. See, the thing about it is, I wasn't sure how many different options there were. Someone told me there's like 27 different endings. Yeah, yeah, there is. There's tons of different endings, and uh, I, I've done it about six times already, yeah. and Everyone is totally different. Okay. And some are hugely dark, of course, being Black Mirror. <laughs> but um, I found it amazing just the interactivity of it and how it worked because we've played FMV games in the past. And, you know, you have your interactivity, but it doesn't feel as, I don't know, as well done or as high quality as this. And I, I just remember one thing when NTL Digital came out, that was really, really early on. They had this. Cable. In, yeah, interactive TV thing, and it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And you had a little remote control, and my neighbours had it, and you could press the colour. That was you played the game you along. You played with it. the oh, game yeah. along. Cool. And that was probably the only thing that I've seen that was interactive. And this one, it, you know, it works so much. And it wasn't like you could sit there thinking about it as well. There's a little it's time. Quick. <laughs> it's quick, so you have to really make your quick decisions on that. I remember I went to the next room to get a coffee and like Samantha's shouting through, like, we need to make a choice. I'm like, ah, run back in. Yeah, it was good to play with two people <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. I, I sat there with my fiance and we both played together. Yeah. And I was like, no, but we didn't have time to discuss the points. At least you get about 10 seconds, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it counts down. Um, I mean, for me, I quite like, I know gamers are kind of torn on this, but I like those kind of Quantic Dreams games like Beyond Two Souls, and I've been playing Detroit yeah. recently as well. Um, a lot of gamers kind of say, oh, they're just like movies. But I've always liked interactive stories where you can make a decision. So for me, this was exactly the kind of thing I like. But having, you know, real actors on a proper TV show, or it was a movie really, essentially, um, not a video game, I think makes it even more accessible. But I also think that Charlie Brooker is the guy that has tried to get video gaming on television in whatever form by doing, you know, his Games Ripe or doing his History of Gaming documentary that he did as well. He's always trying to do that. So with this interactivity, it could have been like, you know, a complete horror zombie film, something totally unrelated. But the fact he did it in the games industry, he had names that were relevant. It had that 80s vibe, like, you know, it put you in that time period in the British Britsoft 80s kind of period. Very well done as well. You know, I mean, there's, you, there's a bit where it goes in WH Smith and they've recreated yeah, the yeah, 80s look Exactly. And, you know, if someone else would have done it, I don't think it would have been done as, as gamey as he, he did it. And the Sid chip even gets there. Nice oh, yeah. There as see, well, yeah there's so. some great, great stuff in there, yeah. So, yeah, guys, thank you so much for all your messages. We have watched Bandersnatch, and I think I'm going to have to watch it again this week. Oh, I can't there. wait for the uh, next interactive one. Have you noticed on the Netflix thing, they've put a little uh, red banner with a star next to it. What is that, the interactive Logo. icon? Is that? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. so that may be start to get rolled out some other places. Well, it's had so much hype, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. they've got to do more of them, surely. So, uh, yeah, thanks for all your messages on that, everybody.
Now, here's a story that's not quite as positive. <laughs> you know, Soldier Boy is. Yeah, so my mate used to get absolutely drunk and he'd just, like, sing, crank that, you know, the Soldier <laughs> Boy thing, and, and everyone would just be like, shut up, Ben. <laughs> See, now that was, for those who don't know, it was a, a novelty hip-hop song, really, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of these one-hit kind of yeah. wonder things. But um, Ten years ago now or so, was it? Yeah, and his name was mentioned in the song, so everybody kind of remembers it. Well, <laughs> Soldier Boy has announced the Soldier Game. So a guy who hasn't been relevant in the world of hip-hop for about a decade has been promoting this uh, really weird console. <laughs> I think the thing is, it's, it's really strange. So he's, he's put out like, oh, this is the mini Soldier Boy and this is the Soldier Boy console, but really it's just cheap Amazon kind of consoles once you could buy an amazon or from chinese suppliers full of roms yeah and he hasn't even repackaged it or stuck any no, no, labels on it there's no picture of soldier boy on it or anything it's just literally bam that's it and i, I saw on ebay and this guy took apart this uh big soldier boy one called the fuse and it's just a plastic huge plastic case with a tiny board in it yeah. <laughs> it's like well, it's really bad i mean the hardware inside them from what i've seen is actually you know it's less powerful than a nintendo switch it's like you know it's one of the tegra chips yeah the reason that everyone has been talking about this i mean essentially all, all he's done like you said is these kind of far east clone consoles a little like you know low-cost boards he's got them a couple of emulators on there fair enough everyone's doing that that's, yeah, that's yeah, fair yeah. Enough. the problem is it's reselling he preloaded them with 508 copyrighted games on them from Nintendo, Konami. <laughs> the companies that really, everyone warned him on Twitter, they might want to defend their trademarks, actually. Yeah, and then he started sending out tweets like, Nintendo's not going to sue me. Yep. And he said that he'd sold 20 million of the units as well. Uh, yeah, so I Not think... the smartest guy in the world, <laughs> no, admittedly. <laughs> Uh, so then he, he was saying to everyone, people are making YouTube videos about this, you know, saying that oh, yeah, you can't be selling this. It's, it's pr great fuel for YouTube, isn't it? To kind of take down the Soldier Boy console. Then he came out like, what are you guys hating on me for? He, he accused people of being racist because, you know, he said, why won't you let a black man be successful, he said. It's like, what the heck? Uh, then, though, it turns out this week, he suddenly come out and said, all right, my hands above, admitted defeat. Deleted all traces of the console on this website. <laughs> now it's gone. So, well, if you have spent money on one of those, I'm sure you can pick them up cheaper from somewhere else. So it won't even be rare. Well, I was going to say, you know, stick to your day job, but yeah, you probably shouldn't even do that. You know, I remember that song. <laughs> Find a uh, new job. <laughs> yeah, do something else, anything else. The fact that he came across so arrogant about it as well, like you know, are these stupid little video games companies are not going to touch me? Well, also, it's, it brings up the kind of legality of stuff like that, selling on ROMs of kind of Nintendo and Game Boy well, stuff. the fact that it came about just after Nintendo took down a load of websites yeah, yeah. a couple of months ago. But also, there are a few consoles that do that, you know, that do sell on, like, you'll get it and you'll open it and it'll be Super Mario Brothers 3 or whatever, and you're like, huh? Yeah, but not, <laughs> normally you'll find that on a little market stall in Skegness, not yeah. being promoted <laughs> no, all over yeah, Twitter yeah, and everything, yeah. so I don't know who was advising him, it's but yeah, yeah, fire those people. Right, then let's talk about this uh, new game for couple of obscure platforms, the MSX and the Amstrad CPC. We're talking about Nogelius? No, I, Nogelius? I think that's how you say it. Um, this game was already out on Steam. Yeah. It's a platformer, and uh, it's, it looks really cool. It's kind of, you know, huge, chunky pixel stuff, and it's about £7.19 at the moment. But the cool thing about this is 
they're aiming to bring it out on real systems and run on real retro systems. And the systems aren't the ones they're usually going for, like the Dreamcast yeah. or, you know, the ones that usually get ports. We've got the MSX here that's getting a port, uh, the Amstrad as well, and uh, Commodore 64. That's pretty cool. I mean, the game looking, um, looking at the video they've got here, of the they're doing a cartridge version as well for the MSX, which is pretty. That cool. is cool. Reminds me a little bit of like Ghouls and Ghosts, actually looking at it. Yeah, Ghost yeah. Ghost there was there was another one that we were sent a copy of called Thy Sword, and it kind of looked a little bit like that with the pixel stuff. I think, well, yeah, like you said, then it's good that they're not just doing all the the consoles that are kind of getting a bit predictable now. Yeah, they're so, yeah, all bringing out on the Dreamcast. It's like you know, even. Mega Drive's got quite a lot of love recently, but some of these more obscure ones, I mean, I've only played an MSX maybe once or twice at, at retro shows. Yeah, and I, and I guess there's not much uh, kind of homebrew coming out for the MSX or, or many games. I could be wrong, but um, it's good to add to their collection as well. And the Amstrad's had a bit. I mean, you had those kind of ports of Pinball Dreams and stuff last yeah. year. It turns out, you know, the Amstrad is actually probably much more of a capable system than a lot of people give it credit for. Oh, before. yeah, yeah. It's a powerful beast, isn't it? Absolutely. thinking that might have to be added to my collection this year, I think. <laughs> Look, I got a few Amazon and uh, gift cards for Christmas. I thought, that's oh, nice. I can get. Now, if you've got a spare Raspberry Pi kicking around like we all have, you can now do a Steam Link with yes, your Raspberry Pi. Now, what, what's a Steam Link? Steam Link is one of the coolest things ever. So I use this every day, all the time. What it is, is before it was a little box. And you would have your box and it would connect either wirelessly or through Ethernet to your television. Yeah. So it has HDMI out and it would stream the games from your PC onto your television. To your gaming rig that you've in another room. Yeah, yeah. But the main thing about that was it would also support controllers. So it supports the PlayStation DualShock ones. It supports wireless Xbox One controllers. So you can have your four controllers, your little Steam Link box, plug it into the HDMI connect to your PC with, like, zero latency uh, if you're using Ethernet and stuff. It, it just looks really smooth, 60 frames per second and stuff. And you can also load up emulators for it. So at the moment, I've got RetroArch on it. Yeah. And you can, like, load it so it scans your ROMs on your PC and then loads it all up full screen so you can sit there with your modern pads playing your retro games. Now, the hardware's actually been discontinued so you can buy them secondhand on eBay and stuff. But now what they've said is they're going to release it for the Raspberry Pi. So if you've got your spare Raspberry Pi... Like we all have. Yeah, you can just have that sitting at the back of your TV and then connect to your computer, sync up the Bluetooth controllers, and you've got a whole gaming system. And it's really bought kind of sofa play back to my house before I'd be sitting on crouched over a PC... Now I'm back on the sofa playing games. It's a bit more wife-friendly to have in the living room as well than a big gaming rig as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. This tiny little Raspberry Pi. I guess it uses the resources of your main gaming PC then. So totally. You, you the, get the power of that. The, the, the power of it. So if you have like GTA Five on it or yep. something, um, you'll be running that completely fine. The, the only thing that it kind of needs is the bandwidth for transferring. Yeah, so Ethernet would be better than... Unless you've got yeah, Wi-Fi, yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. Ethernet's the Wi-Fi's not bad though. Yeah, you can cool. still play on it. Are they releasing that for free then? Yeah, for oh, cool. free, and uh, it's really cool uh, because now you could have your Amazon Echo on one. <laughs> you could have this on the other. You know, 
I'm, I'm liking that if people are discontinuing products, they're continuing it on the Raspberry Pi. That's yeah. really nice as Steam. So I think, you know, with the Raspberry Pi, it's, it's commodity hardware, really, isn't it? It's something you buy as a little throwaway purchase. Yeah. Every geek's got two or three of them around the house. So if you want to get a download link for that and find out a bit more about it, we'll put that and the rest of this week's stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview with Robbie Back, all about Xbox and Microsoft, let's talk a bit about... John Major. John Major. Now, there's a name you don't hear much anymore. <laughs> no, unless you're watching 90s TV. Or... Yeah, spitting image. Yeah. <laughs> so, he wasn't a big fan of email, it turned out. I heard that it was incredibly hard to kind of email John Major back then. And uh, recently, there's kind of been, uh, you know, we have the Official Secrets Act. Yeah. And uh, stuff comes out. Well, there's been some revelations about uh, John Major. And one was that he thought email was a fad. <laughs> so email was a fad. Uh, you know, people were going to enjoy emailing people initially yeah. and then get bored of it. So, Yeah, because he was, he, was, well, he was British Prime Minister in, what, 1992, about 97, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah early, around, early 90s. Yeah. Um, After Margaret Thatcher, that was. Yeah, it, yeah. before Tony Blair. Um, and it was kind of, I mean, you think of that era, though. And how much hype did the internet get in that era? It's like, it's crazy that... But email had been around for longer than that yeah, as well, hadn't decades. it? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, interestingly, you, you sent the story over to me and something actually I had a little flashback of a clip that I saw online. I was like, where did I see that? I managed to track it down. So this is a clip from Tomorrow's World, which for those outside the UK, um, that was a very big weekly technology show that was on in the 80s and 90s and 70s as well, I think. And they talked about essentially what was the upcoming new technology. Yeah. And they did an episode in 94 all about the internet. And I've listened to this clip about John Major. It sounds pretty grand, but it all comes down to computers communicating. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet, that anyone in the world with a computer and a modem to connect it to a telephone line can subscribe to. There are over 20 million people connected up. And one person in particular I know is connected is the American president, Bill Clinton. And I know that because I used this computer to write to him today and I've already got a reply from the White House. And here it is, right. Thank you for writing to President Clinton via electronic mail. The president is committed to integrating this dynamic medium into the White House. And it goes on to give some details of his government's policy to encourage the building of information superhighways. Now, I can't electronically mail our Prime Minister, John Major, because he hasn't got a modem. And I can't find out what his government's policy on information superhighways is because it hasn't got one. At least nothing beyond the usual thing of leaving it to market forces. That's really weird as well, because if you think of the kind of Thatcher era, that was the exact Britsoft kind of era that we were talking about earlier. And Acorn and... Yeah, uh, and then the Prime Minister to be so dim- dismissive of email. <laughs> but actually, if you think about it as well, Major's period was the one where IT information technology came in rather than... Yeah, got took out of schools a lot, didn't it? Around the yeah, 90s, yeah. I think, yeah. So, well, legend so, yeah ha- a definite change in attitude, wasn't it? Well, legend has it that John Major still hasn't got a modem to this day. Uh, uh, telegram or pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> right, so if you want to read more about that, that will be in this week's show notes as well. Thank you for checking out our first episode of 2019. Hope the uh, Christmas New Year hangovers are easing a little bit and you're settling back into the new year. We'll be out again next Friday. We've got some amazing guests lined up over the next few weeks as well, so please do keep an eye on that. And right now, all about the history of the Xbox with this week's special guest, Robbie Back.
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and let's get on our amazing guest this week, the original chief Xbox officer at Microsoft and author of the book, Xbox Revisited. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Robbie Back. Good to be on, guys. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Robbie. How are you? Um, very well. It, it's a it's a gloomy day in Seattle, but that could be any day. So that all works. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we've got similar weather here in the UK most of the time as well. <laughs> <laughs> and let's go like right back to the start of your story. I mean, your father was an engineer, wasn't he? Is that what got you into technology originally? Then no. Well, yeah, my dad was an engineer, and and strangely, I'm not. My dad was a was a chemical engineer, uh, brilliant in math. Um, really good with languages, and I am none of those things. <laughs> so what got me involved in technology is uh, I started investment banking, which is neither here nor there. I decided I didn't like to do that, but I like communications. I like marketing. I liked working with people, and I wanted to be selling and marketing things that were engaging, new, and sort of at the cutting edge. And so when I was at business school, I went to work for a, a technology company in the Valley, uh, that got me an interview with Microsoft for a full-time job, and uh, the rest, as they say, is is sort of history. And uh, you know, Microsoft turned out to be a very fortunate place to interview with. Well, you started at Microsoft quite early on, actually, and you uh, were involved with the Office team as well. I remember when Office kind of started to become the dominant market power. Like, um, how did that happen? So I. Um I worked at Microsoft for three or four years doing a few things. I was in Europe, actually. I was based in Paris for two years. And when I came back, I came back to be the group product manager for Excel. And then nine months later, we sort of merged the Excel and Word teams into the Office team. And you know, people forget, but at that time, you know, Word and Excel probably cumulatively had 15, maybe 20% market share if we were being generous. And Lotus and WordPerfect were the, the dominant guys. And through a bunch of mostly spectacular work on the product side, I will say some good work on the sales side, uh, some trends going our way, some mistakes by competitors. I mean, it's sort of the old thing. It takes uh, it takes a village to make a success. Uh, you know, five years later, we were at 75% market share. You know, there were things going on in the industry that helped us a lot. People decided they, that desktop applications were an enterprise purchase, and the enterprise guys wanted to buy all the apps from one shop. And Office had a great word processor and a great spreadsheet, which was something neither Lotus or WordPerfect could say. One product I remember using quite a lot as well when I was at school, and uh, you know it was really interesting when the the CD-ROM revolution started to kick off. Really, it was um, Encarta, the encyclopedia. Um, so you you worked on that product as well, didn't you? I did when I when I left Office in 1997. I went to work uh, actually for a guy named Pete Higgins, who's um, now uh, my best friend and. Uh, he was the guy who interviewed me to come to Microsoft, and I went to work for Pete running what you would call sort of the lost children of Microsoft's consumer business. Microsoft had had a number of products in the consumer space that were modestly successful, but none of them wildly successful. Uh, you know, this included things like Encarta. People forget the Magic School Bus series. There was a product called World Atlas. We had a fledgling PC games business, which had Freeze Ran, which had uh, Age of Empires and Flight Simulator as its flagships. Um, but Encarta was just an amazing product. And, you know, in classic Microsoft way, it started off as a technology play because we there was this cool thing called CD-ROMs that nobody knew what to do with all the space. And an encyclopedia seemed like a good thing to do to, to use the space and to use the media very well. And look, when Encarta at its heyday 
it was the world's best encyclopedia, hands down. We had data, real accurate information, video, uh, you know, it sang it dance. It was a spectacular product. In fact, when I do my public speaking work, I talk about Encarta and I talk about it in the context of, of a, a great product that got wiped out by a single piece of technology called the Google search algorithm. I remember at school we had like, uh, God, it was a really big like 386 PC and you put um, the CD-ROMs in caddies, you know, it was like it vibrate the whole table when you put it in. But I remember yeah, the first time I loaded up in Carter and like just hearing audio and, you know, images and video and stuff like that as well. It was people kind of forget what how revolutionary CD-ROM was really, don't they? It was a, a factual version of the Internet in one place. And. You know, people now take all of that video and audio and all the historical stuff that you can find on the Internet for granted. But at the time, you know, this was in the, in the mid 90s, uh, late 90s, actually, and, and early 2000s. None of that existed. Broadband didn't exist. So the only way for you to get that media was through a DVD or a, first with a CD and then with a DVD. And, you know, that was uh, it was magical. And it set up in some ways you know, the magic that people feel on the internet, because now you can go and search and find all of those things, and then some, uh, on your own. Well, were you working alongside Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates in those early days? Um, I did. Uh, I wouldn't say alongside in the very early days. So 88 to 90, not really at all. 90 to 92, when I was in Europe, I, I actually traveled a number of times with Bill and spent a fair amount of time with him when he came over to Europe. Uh, in the office era, I spent a lot of time uh, with both Steve and Bill. And in the Xbox era, I worked for Steve and, and would meet with Bill, you know, probably once every six weeks or so. So they were very actively involved in the business. I got to know both of them, um, certainly quite well on a business level, and in particular, Steve, pretty well on a personal level. Well, quite a lot of companies had tried to enter the console world before and, and failed, even including Apple and uh, we had the Philips CDI and stuff like that. Um, when Rick Thompson kind of suggested a console, uh, what was the attitude towards it at the time? Well, there were, there were two things going on that I think were important. One, Microsoft had, had sort of reached a point where, you know, the, the company had been run with this vision of a computer on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software. And there was some understanding that that was coming true. And so the question was, what was next? And that left, left an opening for other devices besides the PC. Um, and then the second thing that happened is Sony started talking about the PlayStation 2 as a PC in the living room. And those two things brought a real um, reality to the idea that Microsoft could do a console. And so when Rick proposed it, there was, um, you know, a serious conversation. I, we're literally at this offsite where you do this exercise. You know, there's probably 70 people in the room. They're vice presidents and above at the company. And you get to propose your own topics. And then people go and vote with their feet to go talk about a certain topic. So there were maybe 20 topics proposed. And Bill had some database SQL topic he wanted to talk about. So he proposed that topic. Rick proposed this video game topic. And when people got to vote with their feet, nobody voted for Bill's topic and Bill came and joined us. So was, was Bill behind the Xbox idea then, like pretty much from the start then? Well, the Xbox idea per se got started, to be fair, with uh, actually two or three groups inside the company who were working on this idea of a console on their own not even as a sanctioned Microsoft product, not even really with any of Bill or Steve's acknowledgement. And after that offsite, 
Rick uh, gathered those two or three different groups and spent time with them coming and talking to Bill about the technology. And they were each proposing slightly different permutations of, of what they wanted to do. And then Bill, after about, I don't know, three months, three, four months, came back to Steve and said, hey, I think we have a technical concept we want to per, uh, pursue. Do you think there's a business here? And that brought the proposal and the the subject back to Rick and I to pursue as a business idea. And Rick spent the next six months evaluating it as a business. And that led to, in December of 1999, the approval for the launch of the Xbox business. And one of those three groups, which was a group of people out of the DirectX team, was their their idea was the primary concept that was selected. Although um, over time, it went through some very big uh, changes in terms of how we were going to execute it. And uh, Rick ended up leaving. So you got the kind of job of heading the Xbox. Um, how was that? Well, it was a bit of a shock, honestly. I mean, the original idea, Rick worked for me at the time. The original idea was to have Rick drop his hardware business. He was running the mice and keyboards and the interactive Barney, if you remember that product, and a few other things. And Rick was going to drop that business and just run Xbox working for me. And so the idea was, well, this will be, you know, 15% of Robbie's time sort of as a on a portfolio management basis. And very early in the project, uh, Rick decided to leave and uh, go to an internet startup in the area that he had helped fund and go work there full time. And literally on a Sunday, I got that note from Rick and on a Monday, I was running Xbox. And, you know, I dropped the other 90% of what I was doing and we parceled that out to other people. And pretty soon I was trying to figure out what the video game business was about. And I literally knew what I'd learned in the PC games business and that was about it, which wasn't anywhere near enough. Well, a big part of Xbox was, uh, you know, multimedia. That was still kind of the buzzword then. I mean, that, that kind of succeeded where where others failed as well, really, with, with that kind of approach. I mean, why was it kind of the multimedia aspect considered important as well as gaming? Well, so that's the interesting thing. We talked about when the Xbox project got started, people talked about it as well. All right, so how do we bring the full experience of the PC into the living room? And very early in the project, we had sort of an epic argument with Bill and Steve about, okay, is this a PC or is it a video game console? And it was our group's opinion uh, and belief that it needed to be a video game console. And so that first version of the product, people forget this, but that first version of the product was not a multimedia product. It was a dedicated video game console. When you put the disc in the drive, the disc was in charge of the machine, not the operating system. You know, that was sort of a fundamental breaking point with Microsoft's past history. And we had, uh, and I described this in my book, we had a, an epic meeting we call the Valentine's Day Massacre that where we had that fight. And where ultimately Bill and Steve said, okay, you guys need to do it the way you think you can get it done. And they supported that. Now, ultimately, when we got to Xbox 360, video aspects, the broader interactive entertainment aspects were, were brought back into the product. But that took, you know, that was five years in the making. I remember my housemate um, at college, we, he had like a, an Xbox with the DVD remote that was required to play DVDs. I remember him being quite shocked that he had to go out and buy a separate remote control to uh, watch movies on it. I mean, what was the story with the DVD remote and why was it separate? Well, so it's, it's sort of two things. One, again, we were focused on video games and we had to get that right. Two, the way DVDs worked um, if you wanted to play D movies on a DVD, you had to pay a royalty. Um, and the royalty went to a, a consortium of people 
um, which included Sony, but it also included Philips and a bunch of other people. And it was expensive. And our product was already too expensive. And so we said, look, you know, we're going to focus on video games. If people want to pay DVDs, that's fine. They can buy the remote. That will enable us. We didn't make any money on the remote, but enabled us to pay the royalty. And it worked fine, but, you know, obviously not not super elegant, not uh, as competitive with PlayStation 2. The other thing I will point out is there was a strong belief at the time, even in that day, that movies on DVD were going to be a dying breed. And Jay Allard, uh, who was sort of in charge of this part of the business, early on said, you know, we we don't need to invest a lot in DVD movies. Um, We need to invest in Xbox Live and in the online service. And ultimately, when we got to 360, that proved to be correct. Well, Xbox needed a kind of killer app or a title. And uh, I remember Bungie producing Marathon really early. Was it kind of uh, part of the strategy to purchase uh, Bungie or did it turn out to be a lucky coincidence? No, there was nothing lucky about it. And I, 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 Ed, Ed Freeze deserves all the credit for this. Um, he uh, was really good at identifying creative teams and developers who had a good creative sensibility and who were also technically strong. And Ed was sort of a unique person to be able to evaluate those things because he was both a deeply technical person and a very creative person. And he brought us uh, Bungie as an acquisition with the idea that it would be a launch title and that it could be a differentiating launch title. Now, so that was strategic, thought out, carefully planned. Having said that, it was not obvious. You know, uh, Halo was a title that started on the Mac, uh, was being developed for the PC when we bought it and got moved to the console world uh, in a world in which first-person shooters were not successful on consoles. That category was a zero at that time. I mean, there'd been all of one first-person shooting game that had been uh, successful in the history of video games, and that was GoldenEye. Um, And that was, you know, what, two generations ago. So people were very skeptical. So I will say it was deeply strategic, deeply insightful on Ed's part, and very risky. And, you know, it turned out to be the right the right risk to take. And kudos to Ed for for spearheading that and for the Bungie team for executing it well. I mean, one thing that must have um, put the price up of the Xbox is uh, the fact that it had a hard drive in there. I mean, was it kind of was that always in the plan to have a hard disk inside the console? Yeah, that was from the beginning. From the beginning, the idea was, you know, consoles don't have local storage. That's a limiting factor. There's lots of things we can do with local storage, and ultimately that's proven to be um, even even a bigger deal than we would have imagined at the time. Um, developers can use the, the hard drive as extra memory. You know, if you get the online business going, there's that download idea that was percolating in the back of people's minds. It was an expensive decision, and one of two reasons why the original Xbox lost so much money, because it was an expensive component that you could not cost reduce. We had the cheapest eight gigabyte hard drive on the planet and it was never gonna get any cheaper. In fact, over the life cycle, it was probably gonna get more expensive because people no no longer wanted to produce it. And between that and the chipset and the the off the shelf nature of our chipset that was difficult for us to customize, you know, Xbox was at sort of a permanent price disadvantage. But um, those decisions set up the future in Xbox 360. And in Xbox 360, we were able to really turn the hard drive into a gigantic asset. Well, talking about Xbox Live, I mean, that was a revolution when that first came along. Um, 
How did that kind of take shape then? And I mean, I imagine there was a lot of challenges making it secure and stable and able to scale with the amount of users that were online. Well, so you you have to, again, sort of put on your time warp hat and go back to 2000 and think, okay, what what was the online world like? And it was a wild, wild west of, uh, to use an American expression, it was a wild, wild west of, of gaming. You know, you sort of had to find somebody's IP address to play with them. You know, our vision originally, and this again goes back to Jay Allard, was that we wanted gaming to be a social experience and we wanted you to be able to play with your friends. And there was this cool thing called broadband that didn't exist at the time, but that was coming. And we thought we could take advantage of that. And so very early on, we optimized for Xbox Live. You know, we had a the original spec for the Xbox had a 56K modem in it. And we took it out and just said, we're not going to ship with a modem. And Bill and others thought we were kind of crazy. And we said, well, you know, a modem, we'll never do online gaming with a modem, so why bother? And so we bet on the Ethernet port. We bet on broadband. uh, We bet on the idea that, you know, you could make gaming a social experience. And, you know, Xbox Live, again, you forget the timeline. Xbox Live was before MySpace. You can argue it was the first social network. Um, In that way, um, completely revolutionary. So I remember like earlier services like, um, you know, Sega had SegaNet with the Dreamcast. But I mean, the thing about Xbox Live is, you know, the fact that you had the, the live voice chat as well. And that, that in itself, I think, brought something new to it. The fact that you could actually talk to other people all around the world. That just felt like rather than having just like names on a screen, that was something that was revolutionary. And I guess that would only really work properly on, on broadband. Yeah. So I would say there's, there's a number of things that made Xbox Live different from anything that had preceded it. Um, certainly the fact that it was on broadband meant that you could have real gameplay and that, you know, it wasn't about who had the fastest processor and the, the better, you know, modem connection. Um, the second thing was voice. The third thing was you had your gamer tag, which I know today sounds obvious, but at the time was a big fight in the industry. When we went and told publishers, Hey, uh, when a user comes on Xbox live, they're going to have one name. There's not going to be an Electronic Arts name and an Activision name and a Take-Two name and an Ubisoft name. There's going to be an Xbox name. And that's how you created the social architecture that became Xbox Live. And the combination of that namespace plus voice plus broadband with a secure network connection changed online gaming forever. And I I, I say that sort of dramatically, but I think it's uh, I actually think it's true. One thing I did like that was a bit of a gimmick about the, the original Xbox Online is you had the voice changing capability as well, which uh, I, I know didn't make it into the 360 or after that. I mean, what, what was the idea behind that? Was that just a bit of fun that was in there? Well, I think it was. I, I think it was an exploration. You know, when you're, you know, the first person in a territory, you have to go out and explore and see what's there. And so we had lots of, you know, different explorations, some of which were wildly successful, like downloadable content, and some of which weren't. And so you you explore, you experiment, you expand where things are successful, you pull back when people don't think it works or it's gimmicky. What we discovered is that people were actually making a real social connection. And you didn't want a phony voice. Hmm. You wanted your real voice. And you wanted to make a, a human connection with somebody else. And I think that's a, uh, you know, a powerful concept that, you know, uh, a bunch of companies have made a lot of money on since then. Well, the Xbox got off to a little bit of a rough start and uh, we had Ed on and he talked about the uh, E3 launch. 
Um, would you tell us your experiences with it and also uh, with Muhammad Ali and Donald Trump there as well, I think? So E3, uh, E3 was always a roller coaster ride for me. We had some epically horrible E3s and we had some epically bad. And I think the two endpoints of that conversation are the first E3 uh, where we actually showed an Xbox game, which would have been in 2001, so May of 2001. You know, we had this briefing that we did at 8.30 in the morning with a lot of journalists who'd been out late at a Sony party the night before. Um, The briefing was bad. The Xbox didn't turn on. The games we showed were pretty mediocre. Uh, That was pretty much cataclysmically bad. I, when we got to the end of that, I was like, uh, oh man, this is, this is, this is going to be way harder and be sort of a disaster. And that E3, you know, we showed Halo for the first time in the booth and people didn't like it. Um, and it looked, the graphics didn't look great. It was slow. It just was a bad E3. And then, you, you know, you fast forward a few years and we're announcing, we're doing the announcement for, uh, that Electronic Arts is joining Xbox Live finally. They're bringing all their sports games, so they had all their sports athletes. All the cover athletes from every EA sports game was there. Um, we're backstage with Muhammad Ali, who's doing magic tricks and taking photos with us. Um, we come out on stage, and that E3 was glorious. You know, you, if you were going to be in that business for a long time, you had to kind of learn to roll with the punches. And you learn that winning E3 doesn't really mean anything. Losing E3 doesn't really mean anything. You just try to figure out how to do your best uh your best job and and go from there. And that's what we did. And, uh, you know, that one with Muhammad Ali, I will, I will, uh, you know, that's a memory that's deep, deep, deep in my mind. I'll never forget it. What was he like? The sad thing of course, is he couldn't talk at that point. Yeah. And so he could communicate, but he would communicate with his eyes. He would communicate with his hands. He, he literally was backstage doing magic tricks with us. He, we went to take photos and we took the stock photo with, you know, Ed Freeze, Jay Allard. Oh, no, it was, uh, let me, sorry. It was uh, Jay Allard, Peter Moore, myself, and Muhammad Ali. And you take this, the standard photo. When we finished that, Ali f- pulled the photographer over and grabbed my fist. You know, and he, he couldn't speak, but he grabbed my fist and took my fist and put it to his nose and had the photographer take a picture. So I have this just awesome picture with Peter and or Peter and uh, Jay laughing, Muhammad Ali standing there with a grimace on his face with my fist at his nose. <laughs> Amazing. It's just uh, you know those kinds of things you you just you just don't forget. And when you know Don Matrick was on stage with us, uh, he was working at Electronic Arts at the time. He was announcing their sports lineup, so we had all the sports athletes come out on stage. Carmelo Anthony was their, I think their college athlete at the time. He came out on stage. Um, you know, I had somebody from the NHL, somebody from the NBA. Um, uh, no, actually, Carmelo was from the NBA and uh, Okafor was from uh, college. So they had all these athletes. And then Don has the surprise reveal of Muhammad Ali. And the crowd went completely nuts. And, you know, you think it's a gaming crowd. That was a cultural moment. And, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of don't forget the chills. I mean, around that time, the whole world changed because obviously um, 9-11 happened around then too. I mean, that obviously delayed the launch of the Xbox, didn't it? And I know you guys had like uh, quite an epic road trip to get across America. Yeah, that had a a lasting impact on me. 
I mean, I literally flew into New York the morning of 9-11. I landed about 6 a.m. on a red eye from Seattle. And I took a cab to the hotel at the Marriott in in Times Square, went up to my room and caught two or three hours of sleep. I woke up, I don't know, it was probably 9.30. And I got a call from the lawyer at our PR agency. I was there for a press tour. And I got a call from our lawyer at PR agency telling me that, uh, hey, I know your press tour has been canceled. If there's any way I can help, our offices are across the street. Just let me know. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I had to turn on the television to see 9-11 happening in front of me. And then I was able to go to the window and look down and you could see some of the smoke rising above the buildings. And we did then. There was a a dash to figure out how you could get home and you wanted to be with your family and be with your loved ones. And they were worried about you. They knew we were in New York. They couldn't call my cell phone because the cell tower had been knocked down. Um, We were communicating by pager. I had a a uh, BlackBerry pager. So we were sending text messages on a BlackBerry pager. We got a group of four people together and we got in a Ford Taurus and we drove across country. And I write about that in my, in the book Xbox Revisited, but I'm, I'm just finishing a second book and I'm, I'm writing about it again. It's, it had a lasting impact on me and I think it changed our country forever in uh, some good ways and, and unfortunately mostly in some bad ways. Well, you met um, a really nice GameStop employee on the road trip um, with uh, all the Microsoft stand displaying. He must have been happy to see you when you when you turned up. He, we, that's a that's a great story. We're in Mount Rushmore Mall in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, or is it? Uh, Sioux, I, I think it's Sioux Falls. Anyway, uh, it's in the west part of South Dakota, and uh, we go into the Mount Rushmore Mall because we're we're going to get some food, and we had to buy pillows because we decided we we're going to drive through the night. And there's a software, et cetera. It wasn't even, you know, this is when this was before uh, uh, EB Games uh, and Electronic Boutique. It was a software, et cetera, at the time. And they had all the Xbox materials up waiting for the launch. And we walked in. The guy's name's Derek Barnes. And we chatted with Derek. We took pictures. I have the pictures with Derek. Derek and I have stayed in touch. I exchanged email with him about a year ago. Um, I was doing a speech down in Florida and he was almost able to come to the speech, but we've, we've stayed in touch. You know, he was working there. He ended up working in it. He's gone on to have a family and, um, you know, it's just one of those personal connections you make that, uh, last for a lifetime. Well, I hear when the, um, Times Square launch happened, it was, it was still quite in America, you know, they were quite high with security and stuff. And, uh, Bill Gates was actually out there kind of playing games with fans and, uh, promoting it. We did have a lot of security stuff that we had to do. But having said that, you know, if you get to know Bill, I mean, he pays attention to security because he has to. And he's careful. Once he had a family, you know, he was he got very careful. But, you know, his view was, hey, this is what I need to do. And, you know, I'm not going to not do it because there's bad people in the world. That's just not the way we do things. And so we did a, that was really the first big thing in Times Square after 9-11. And that Toys R Us was brand new. It used to be an old movie theater. Um, It was the first event at that Toys R Us. Um, And, you know, we were able to light up Times Square, which was, you know, quite cool. And again, you know, only three months after 9-11. So for me, quite emotional. I know when we're talking to Ed on the show, he he told us that, you know, initially, Bill, you know, after that Valentine's meeting that you had that went on late into the night, you know, he he really didn't like the idea of the Xbox. But I imagine by then, 
he'd really come come round to the idea and was very much on board with that. I mean, it even got down to the fact that he actually sold the first... I remember watching the video of him selling the first Xbox at the launch there as well. I mean, had he really taken it under his wing and uh, become very fond of it by then? Well, basically, the Valentine's Day Massacre meeting was a, a turning point. I don't think when they left the meeting, Bill and Steve were happy. In fact, I'm sure they were quite unhappy. But they both, at the end of that meeting, made a commitment that they were in and that they would support us. And to their credit, they did it every step of the way through some really bad times and some bad mistakes on our part. Um, and so Bill, you know, once you're in, he's in. And he would play games. You know, he wasn't a gamer by by nature, but he'd play games, in particular some of the more casual games, that the games that he thought of that were more accessible. And he'd send us a lot of feedback. He had tons of feedback on the architecture of the box and the product. You know, he was he was in. And when we asked him to promote it, he did whatever we asked him to do. And we had to be smart about, you know, what things we would ask him to do and when we'd ask him to do it. But uh, he was all in. And, you know, Steve, I went to work for Steve shortly thereafter. And, you know, he was the same way. We'd have meetings and there'd be good news and bad news. And he'd take the good news on an even keel. He'd take the bad news on an even keel and then work with me on what we were going to do next. I, I, you know, they, Bill and Steve are, great people. They, uh, if you get to know them personally, they're, they're really good people. And, you know, they, they had their own, their own foibles and things that they weren't good at, or that, you know, they have a reputation for being noisy or whatever it is. I will always respect and appreciate the guidance and leadership they showed on that product and the patience they showed with me and the rest of the Xbox team. Without that, the project could not have happened. Are they kind of like their public personas then when you, when you get to work alongside them or are they quite well, no, see, that's the thing that's so funny. I, you know, they both have public personas. You know, Bill, you know, sort of the nerdy guy. Steve, sort of the bombastic guy. And, you know, Bill's a little bit of a nerd, I suppose. And Steve can be a little bit bombastic at times. But as people, uh, they're really human and, and good people. They're both exceptionally competitive. But they both are giving back to the world in ways that are just amazing. They both have a very clear sense of family and what that means. Uh, they gave me great personal and professional advice and gave me the flexibility to do some amazing things. And I found the the best way to work with them was to meet with them one-on-one -on -one rather than in large groups because the large groups tended to bring out more of the public persona and the one-on-one -on -one meetings brought out the real person. I remember hearing some rumors about a Xbox handheld system. Did anything ever come of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ever popular X Boy. Um, <laughs> that project got pitched, I'm going to guess, three times during my tenure on the Xbox business. And it always got pitched in the idea that, well, this is a line extension. People are already doing the games. It'll be easy to port them. And it'll give us more space at retail. And our publishers will be able to do more stuff with Microsoft technology, la, la, la. It always impressed me that when we actually dug into it, it was just another business. And it didn't really have that much to do with Xbox. The games were all gonna have to be different. The technology was gonna have to be different. It was another hardware business where it was gonna be hard to make money. Um, there was another hardware business with a deep entrenched competitor and a second one coming, and we were gonna be last to the top party. And so we just said, look, we got our hands full on Xbox, let's make that successful. And that's where we got that's where we got focused. Well, you tried to leave Microsoft and uh, they wouldn't let you. <laughs> how, did, yeah. how did they convince you to stay then? That E3 that I mentioned earlier, and that was sort of epically bad. After about 
I don't know, it was probably two weeks after that, I had reached the conclusion that my work was destroying my personal life. You know, I was working probably 18 hours a day, sometimes more. And it wasn't even just that I was working those long hours. It was even when I wasn't working, my mind was on the business. Um, we were struggling. Uh, I was thinking this was going to be a failure, honestly. And you, you just sort of step back and you say, okay, um, do I want to destroy my personal life for this? And at two o'clock in the morning, I decided I didn't want to do that. And I wrote my boss a resignation note. Uh, I worked for a guy named Rick Beluzzo at the time. And I wrote Rick a resignation note, which appears in my book word for word with one or two names uh, excerpted out. And I basically eloquently told him that I was the wrong person for the job and he should get somebody else. And, you know, it's really you have to know that the tension was very high and the pressure was very high. And then I cared a lot about my family because I am not a quitter and I don't mind failure. And yet I had reached a breaking point. And Rick sort of brought me back from the edge, got me focused on things that we could do to get the launch to be successful. And then ultimately uh, helped me get some uh, some professional help to sort through my personal and professional life and get things on track. And, and again, I, you know, that led to the the next uh, eight or nine best years of my professional career. So thank God for, for what he did for me and for the for the people who helped me along the way. At what point did you think st- Sony started seeing the Xbox as kind of serious competition? And how did uh, the Xbox's development kind of affect the way that the PlayStation was going? That's a good question. My guess is that sort of that 2003-2004 time frame they started to think, okay, these guys are serious. They're investing a lot of money. They have deep pockets. They're not blinking. They have this thing called Xbox Live, which is reasonably successful. Publishers are doing titles on PlayStation first, but they're doing all their titles on Xbox now. And, you know, I have to assume that around that time they started thinking about us. And, you know, look, when they went to develop the PS3, they had to say, okay, well, how do we make sure we stay ahead? And they pushed the envelope on almost everything in that product. They you know, developed this cell processor, which is this highly evolved, well, actually not very evolved, but highly advanced, technically complicated processor. They decided that Blu-ray was the be-all, end-all, and they were going to bet big on that. Um, they, you know, they had to put storage into their product. And they, in my mind, got caught up in the engineering and lost sight of the market and produced a product that was technically cool, but very expensive and hard to create games for, and a year late. So, you know, in a way, the Xbox team collectively should take some credit for Xbox 360 success, for sure. We did a lot of things right. I'm very proud of that team. It was an incredibly strong team. But you you also have to recognize that we forced Sony into some errors, and they made some uh, some big errors that opened the door for us, and we were there ready to run through it. Well, when did the planning for the Xbox 360 begin then? And what were kind of the the initial aims, you know, to follow up the original Xbox? You know, that's the sort of the irony. Literally, uh, probably two months after we launched, and probably before we launched in Europe, because remember, we we launched in Europe uh, some three months later than we did in the US, uh, the uh, Silicon team was coming to us asking for directions on how to think about the next version of the product. And so we were barely catching our breath from the first version when the the hardcore technical parts of our team 
were demanding guidance on what to do next. And, you know, for six, seven, eight months, we sort of flailed around, not really knowing what to tell them because we were so busy trying to make sure the current business didn't die that the idea that we were going to think about the next version was really hard. But late in 2002, we started to do serious planning work, which led to the three-piece strategy process that I describe in my book. And um, we used that strategy process to build the strategy for Xbox 360. Um, and, you know, that strategy process in combination with great work by the team and and some mistakes by Sony uh, enabled us to be successful with 360. Well, the great thing about the 360 I found was that you had kind of two versions, one which was the arcade version, which was a bit cheaper and had great Xbox Live arcade potential, and also the Elite version. Um, why did you guys decide to have different tiers of uh, Xboxes? It was mostly not a technical decision. It was mostly a marketing decision. We had to figure out, we, we wanted to have a product at $299, and you, we couldn't technically sell a product at $299 with the full spec we had. And so we had to say, okay, what can we sell at $299? Where would we position that? What would we technically enable that to do? How would we technically architect that product? And then what would the high-end version look like? And that was, to my knowledge, the first time where you had you know, two tiers of product in the video game space. I suppose in the 3DO case, you had multiple tiers of products because they were done by different companies. But this sort of pricing waterfall was designed to take advantage of the fact that there were hardcore gamers who would be willing to spend $399, but the mass of the market was going to be at $299 and below. And we felt like we needed to have a product at that price point. Well, how much did the um, Xbox 360 initial units, technical problems affect it? Obviously, the, the Red Ring of Death, I imagine, was a, a very expensive, costly exercise when those units started to get returned. Yeah, you don't, you don't often get to say that you had a billion-dollar problem, but we had a billion-dollar problem. And, you know, it's, it's funny because we were nine months in before we knew we had a problem, and the first nine months were really good. You know, our holiday in 2005 went very well. The holiday in 2006, even in the face of Sony and Nintendo launching, went exceptionally well. We thought we were on our way. And the Red Rings uh, slowed us down. Uh, actually, ironically, not so much in sales, but just slowed us down because the team had to step back and say, okay, we got to deal with this problem. And we didn't add a lot of headcount to deal with the problem. We just said, hey, team, this is the problem. What are we going to do about it? How do we keep our customers happy? And the good news through all of that is that even though we had a problem, it took us, it was a hard problem to fix. It took us a long time to get it right. Um, our customers just wanted their Xbox 360 back. And as long as we had the warranty in place for multiple years and were, were willing to, to send them a new version of the product and keep them playing, they were happy. And our customer satisfaction stayed quite high despite um, what happened with the red ring. So it was expensive for sure. It was a real challenge for the team. And I, I'm super proud of the way the team responded to that challenge, but it was a real challenge for the team, but we stayed focused on customer satisfaction. And by doing that, um, you know, we kept our customers in the Xbox space, buying new consoles, uh, and buying games. And the business itself didn't really have a hiccup, uh, even though from a, you know, a PR perspective and from a cost perspective, it was a real problem. 
kind of talking about you know things that m- may have been expensive kind of mistakes, I guess. Um, the HD DVD drive that was um, was that something that they lost a lot of money on? I think the team, if you ask them, would say what we did with HD DVD was a huge success for us. And I mean this in the following way: if you go back to our earlier conversation, we didn't actually care that much about DVD movies. I mean, we really didn't. Our view was this was going to be a download streaming business. Uh, Jay's view was uh, DVDs are uh, a thing of the past. People are going to download movies and stream them, and we should enable that on Xbox Live. Let's focus on that. And then the the, the high-definition format doesn't matter. And you know the disc format sort of becomes irrelevant. The second reason we didn't care too much about it was it was expensive. Doing Blu-ray would have been expensive and probably would have slipped our product because Blu-ray wasn't ready. And so in many ways, our work with HD DVD was sort of a uh, tactical piece of work um, rather than a strategic piece of work. And the fact that Blu-ray won the disc battle, you know, we, we didn't feel great about that, but it, it, it wasn't bad for our business. Um, in the end, the streaming business on Xbox was a great thing for us. And people could get the high-definition content they wanted. And for guys like me, it means, you know, I've still got an HD DVD drive kicking around somewhere. You can actually get movies on HD DVD cheaper than DVDs now if you uh, ever see them in, in like, secondhand stores and stuff. Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny you say that because I, I have a few of those in my basement, too. Yeah. Um, and I think I probably still have one of the one of the external drives. Um, but I quickly discovered that I just didn't watch very movies on Xbox. I, I streamed them. I didn't use the, D, the DVD drive even for a progressive scan movie. You know, on a regular uh, on a regular DVD, it just didn't do it that much. And as the portfolio of movies on Netflix and other streaming services got bigger and bigger, it just became less and less of a problem. And it enabled us again to keep our product priced at a point where people could actually afford it. Well, one thing that was good about the 360, you know, for people that had the original Xbox, was um, backwards compatibility. So now there are different architectures. The um, original was x86, and then you went PowerPC with the 360. I mean, was it must have been quite a difficult process making the emulator and making sure those games ran at a decent rate and um, kept people in that Microsoft world. You know, we had long arguments about this. Um, there was a camp of people that wanted it to, to have us to have full compatibility. Certainly the marketing team would have said full compatibility was the right answer. The technical team made it clear that that wasn't possible, at least not without putting another CPU in the box. And, you know, of course, that was was not going to be possible because of cost. And so we had to find the right middle ground. And the emulation work took some of the best software engineers at the company to figure it out. It was really, really hard work. Um, and, you know, in the end, I think it was worth it. But it was an expensive thing because it turns out mostly uh, over time, people cared less and less about it. And mostly people wanted to play the new versions of the games. And the franchises that were hot on Xbox 360 were different than the ones on Xbox anyway, with the exception of of Halo. And so um, over time, it became less important. But it was a huge investment and some brilliant, I mean, really brilliant technical work to to make that happen. Uh, I think Microsoft's one of the few places that could have done that, just because we had so much software talent in the company. Well, I was wondering as well, do you uh, play any of the titles yourself and did you have a, a favorite Xbox title? So this is the this is a funny thing. I am a horrible video game player. I'm beyond horrible. <laughs> the team never let me demo the product, ever. The only time I got to demo the product 
is if they had somebody that they wanted to beat me on stage. And then I then I was allowed to demo the product. So I am not a gamer. My Xbox uh, gamer tag is XBACHS, and that's actually my son, who's a who's a really good gamer. So I don't uh, I don't play video games, and I never did. I loved the video game business. Um, I was not a great judge on the content or the the gaming side of it. That's why Ed Freeze, Jay Allard, and a few other people were so important to to balance out our management team and backfill for the places where I was deficient. I imagine after working 18 hour days, the last thing you want to do is go home and play Xbox. <laughs> yeah, so this is, the, this is the thing that always blew me away is, you know, you'd be sitting in a meeting and I know how hard the team's working and then they'll start talking about the latest game they're playing and inside I'm saying, when are they doing this? <laughs> I just couldn't figure it out. It's like their day was five hours longer than mine somehow. Well, the book, Xbox Revisited, why did you decide to write a book? And um, what can people expect from that book then if they haven't read well, it? Well, I decided I wanted to write a book because I, uh, really two reasons. One, I felt like the Xbox story was a compelling story for people to hear. It's a story fundamentally of, <laughs> of both failure and success. Uh, and I wanted to tell that story. Um, more importantly, I wanted to tell the story of the strategy process we used, the 3P strategy process. And tell that in the context of Xbox, but also talk about how people could use that process in their own business, and even more importantly, in their local communities with civic organizations and nonprofits. Because what I do now in my career is I'm what I call a civic engineer. I do a lot of work with nonprofits, local organizations, uh, governments, uh, to try to help them be better at what they do, and to try to bring some of the experiences I've had from the business world to that space. You know, Xbox Revisit is a chance to put that down in paper and talk about the story both at a personal and professional level. So it has a lot of the story of Xbox in it, but it also is a, a business book to enable people to take the principles we learned on Xbox and apply them in their business or in their nonprofit and hopefully help them be better at the strategy process. Because fundamentally, if you want to do something that's complicated, you got to have a great core strategy to get you there. And we certainly learned that in the Xbox case. And, you know, it's been it's been gratifying. The book's done done uh, quite well, and it's on its second printing. And uh, people who read it both enjoy the story and feel like they walked away with something valuable. And if, if I can do that in my second book, I'll be, uh, I'll be a happy guy. And what's the second book about then? Well, the second book is, um, is actually fiction. So it's a political thriller, um, but it's a political thriller with a message about what we need to, need to do to get uh, our communities back on track. And it's it's in the context of the United States, but I, I think other communities around the world are going through some of the same turmoil. And so the book is a, it's a real fictional uh, story. So you could just read it as a, as a political thriller and hopefully enjoy the story. But it's also uh, a book that when you put it down should make you think. Well, Robbie, though, is, uh, I'm an Xbox gamer still to this day, and I've got three Xbox Ones at home. And like I said to you before, I mean, you know, the Xbox was what got me back into games. So I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for the Xbox. So it's uh, it's been wonderful getting your stories and hearing your memories about your time working on Xbox. And uh, really appreciate you joining us this week. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. And uh, best to you guys. And uh, thanks for taking the time and being interested.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.